Good evening. Hope you had a good day, and this will be a good uh, way to wrap it up for you. We're looking at a chapter that's I'm excited about. I've been looking forward to for several weeks. There's some great stuff here. A couple of announcements. High school retreat sign-up start this Sunday, with the deadline being June 8th. You need a $10 deposit at the sign-up. Information at the youth table. Uh, the cost is $200 for the camp. It'll include those currently in eighth grade who are moving up to high school as soon as school ends. If you're interested in sponsoring a high schooler, please contact Pastor Jonathan also. And then this Saturday morning, we have our men's fellowship with uh, John Miller from Calvary Chapel San Bernardino sharing. So I'd encourage you to come out for that. Is there anything going on this week other than that? Great. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13 now. There's so much in this chapter, so many good things. We've, the last two Sunday mornings, we've taken two of the key passages, and, and yet there's just so much more. So I'm excited that we got here, and also it means that we're finishing the book of Hebrews, which means then we'll be jumping back into the Old Testament and in the book of Numbers, and that's an exciting book also. Hebrews 13, verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. It's interesting that it's almost never commanded that we are to love. That's not the thrust of the scripture at all. Because love is something that naturally occurs in the Christian life. It's something that Paul says is the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about the works of the flesh and he talks about the fruit of the spirit and he says, walk in the spirit over in Galatians and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love. The way the scripturally they would do lists a lot of times, we often think of it as being fruits, love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. But in actuality, it says singular, the fruit is love. All those other categories, all those other descriptions that we sometimes call fruit are really just other ways of expressing what happens when you love. And that's why love is the greatest commandment. That's why Jesus said you could pretty much sum up the whole law by saying love God and love other people. And because if you're loving, well, you, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, joy. Joy comes if you're being loving. Peace patience. All of these qualities, all of these characteristics are things that naturally occur in our lives when we're being loving. And if we're not being loving, we find a lack of joy, a lack of peace, an impatience, and no self-control, and so on, and the goodness, and all of the things that are descriptive of love. And so here in Hebrews 13.1, he says, let it continue. He doesn't say work it up, make it happen, do it yourself. The implication, strong implication here, is that brotherly love is going to happen unless we let something stop it, unless we let things get in the way of it. It's a natural, well, it's supernatural, actually, but it's something that when we come to the Lord, it should just naturally flow forth from our lives. But when we look around and we see that brotherly love is lacking, when we realize that we aren't really caring for each other the way that we should, then we have put a barrier in the way. It's never that God just hasn't given us enough love. For, as Paul said, 
God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's poured out his love on us. There's not a love shortage coming from God. If you're not a loving person, if you can look around you right now and see other people who God loves and you really don't care about them, don't go to God and say, God, please give me more love. Please pour more love on me. So I'll, And really, even I think that it's maybe putting the cart before the horse when we say, God, please give me more love for this person. Please give me a love for them. God has given you the most love he can possibly give. Unlimited love. He's showered his love upon you. He sent his son to die for you. And if you're not loving, it isn't because God hasn't given you enough love. It's because that love is there and yet you're not responding to it. That's why Paul prayed again for the Ephesians, that they would be able to comprehend the love of God, that they would know his love. See, if you know how much God has loved you, it's just a, a knee-jerk reaction to reach out and love others. Jesus said in talking about the, the woman who, who poured the ointment on him and anointed him, he said, who's going to love more, a person who's been forgiven a little or a person who's been forgiven much. And so also, when you understand God's love for you, you can't help but love others. What blocks that? Well, one thing is that if you aren't receiving God's love, I, I talk to people almost every day who just can't accept the fact that God loves them unconditionally, that God accepts them, that he looks at them and, and he's happy with their progress. Instead, the devil lies to us and beats us up and causes us to feel like we're just failures, causes us to feel like maybe God doesn't love me at all. It's a horrible thing when someone grows up not knowing that they're loved. I know one girl, high school girl, that I talked to recently, and, and I was praying with her and talking to her, and she was sharing how she had had, like, well, she had her real dad, and her real dad molested her. And then she had a stepdad, and he physically abused her and beat her up. And then she had another stepdad, and he put her down and ripped her to shreds. And she said, I guess I'm just not good enough to have a dad. I guess God just doesn't want me to have a father. And how sad when the, the sin that surrounds us causes us to miss the obvious, that we have a dad who loves us. And our earthly dads can't hold a candle to them. And it's the biggest thing. And yet, and I thank God for those of us who, when you have an opportunity to have an earthly dad who really loves you, and that gives you a picture of God's love for you, but you need to get a bigger picture than that. But when Satan comes and lies to us and makes us feel like we're not loved, then we're not going to be loving people. And there are other things that block that, though. Selfishness, pride. Sometimes I just don't have time for other people because I'm so busy with me. I can't worry about taking care of others because I'm trying to hold it together myself. But the love of God, understanding how much he loves me, it means I don't have to take care of myself. Oh, don't misunderstand me. There are certain things that you need to do that God wants you to do that he calls you to do to take care of yourself. And yet, our primary responsibility is not to look out for our own needs. It's not me first. It's that Philippians 2 truth that we esteem others higher than ourselves. 
let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, but when we start to get selfish, then love blocks the way. Because the truth is, if I'm worried about me, that's enough to keep me busy all day long. I really can't, I really wouldn't have time for anyone else if I was looking out for number one. And, and so when we do become selfish, we do become self-centered. Oh, and there are other things that get in the way when we become materialistic, when we become stressed, when we allow ourselves to become run down and we get depressed because we're not. All of those things can cause us to not be others-centered, to not love. But it isn't a question of the love not being there. And what he's saying here is, get the stuff out of the way that keeps you from loving. Love is your natural response when you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. And so if you feel like, I mean, and it's great, I hope you do, I hope you have that feeling that, you know, I, I can think of so many people that I love. I can think of so many people that I would lay my life on the line for them. I can think of so many people that I just wanna pour my life out for. If that's the case, great. And, you know, that's the way it should be. And I mean, I, and that's not some really difficult thing to do. I'm no great person, but I love so many people so deeply. I really do. And, I, and I'm thankful for that. And really, the, the reason for my life is other people. It's not myself. I'm not bragging about that at all. It's nothing that I've done at all. It's just that by the grace of God, I look at people that he loves and, and it just touches me. I can't. You know, I, I can't look at somebody who he loves who's hurting without being affected by it. And that's the way we should be. And sometimes I fight that because society can see that as a weakness. I see it as a weakness sometimes. And yet, that's what God wants us to have. If God is working that in your life, great. That's totally normal. For you to care about others more than yourself, that's normal for a Christian. But if you see, I'm coming up a little short. And we all do, believe me. I, you know, I have my days, sometimes weeks, maybe years, I don't know, but where I'm just going, I'm not as loving as I ought to be. Now, it still doesn't make you perfect when you love. But, but love covers a multitude of sins. Love will make up for a lot of other things, a lot of other shortcomings and failures. People know you love them. But if you're coming up short... Don't ask for this love to materialize out of nowhere. What you need to do is see what's getting in the way and receive God's love for you. Understand how much he cares for you, how much he's forgiven for you. And then as a result, the love just naturally happens. And so here is his reminder. He just says, don't let anything get in the way of that. I suspect if you're not feeling very loving, you probably either have some issues as to why you're not receiving God's love for you. And maybe it's the fault of other people around you who haven't been loving enough, I don't know. Because if people didn't reach out and touch me, I couldn't be loving, I don't think. I mean, I, all I think of is the reason why I'm touched by other people and what they go through is that there have been people who care about what I go through. There are people who at the right time just come along and, and just put their arm around me or just say, I'm praying for you or leave me a note or something. And I just go, when I've received that kind of love, it's easy to give it out because I realize how valuable it is. But if you're having a problem with love, it's probably either that you're not receiving for 
one reason or another. Or maybe you've just cluttered your life a little too much and you just don't have time. You just haven't let go of everything else and realize that love is the main thing, that love is the new commandment that he gives. A new commandment I give unto you, Jesus said, that you love one another. And if we miss that, nothing else matters. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it's like a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. If I have so much faith, I could remove mountains without love. It doesn't profit me. And if I, if I give everything I have to the poor, if I give my body to be burned and I don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. And understand this, if people don't know that you love them, then anything else you do for them is a waste of time. If you're sharing your faith, if I'm going to share the gospel with someone, I would rather have them walk away saying, oh, it's nice that the guy really cares about me, but what he had to say is just stupid. I'd rather have them think that than to say, well, that guy's pretty smart. He had some good arguments, but boy, he's so arrogant. He's looking down his nose at me. I don't really feel like he cares for me. I'd rather have my kids think of me as a sucker who loves them than to think of me as a consistent example, righteous man who doesn't. See, And so we need to understand this is the main thing. This is the most important thing. If we don't get this taken care of, then nothing else really matters. It all amounts to just nothing. It all comes down to, to love. So let brotherly love continue. And then he goes on to say, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. The Bible tells us that angels are creatures of God that are there to minister to us, minister to our needs, to help us, to protect us. We, I don't know if every person has their own guardian angel. If I get to heaven and I find out there was one angel that was in charge of protecting me, I want to ask him a few questions about some of the things that have happened to me over the years, and I wonder where he was. Um, the Bible does say that children, it seems to say that children have angels. It talks about, you know, their angels, the children's angels are beholding the face of God. So I hope you don't grow out of having angels. People are fascinated by the subject of angels, and there's really not a, a ton of things that we can say about it because they kind of come and go through the scriptures. They're there. They're definitely a part of reality. I believe that there are probably angels here in this room right now. Um, when we get to heaven and we find out how many things they saved us from, we'll probably appreciate them more than we do now. But, you know, here he, he makes the statement, don't forget to entertain strangers for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. The implication, strong implication is, it's important for you to be hospitable to people who are strange to you, remembering that there were people who have actually entertained angels. Probably a, a reference to Abraham. That was the clear case where the angels, actually one of them being Jehovah himself, probably Jesus Christ, but coming to the tent of Abraham and he brought them in and it was when he found out about, you know, that he was going to have Isaac and everything. We read about that when we were in Genesis chapter 18. He just thought they were guys. There have been several times in the scriptures where somebody who looks like a person turns out to be an angel. And so does that mean that maybe you've met an angel 
that one of those people that you met at one point, actually, it wasn't a person at all, it was an angel? I don't know. The Bible doesn't make it clear. We're short on examples of it happening, but we know it's happened. And for the fact that he brings it up here, there's at least planting that seed of saying, you don't know who it is that you're showing hospitality to. And I think the supplies, whether they're angels or whether they're just people who God sent to you as messengers, and the word angel means messenger, and so sometimes it's used to refer to a person, so it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, only these supernatural creatures that we call angels. It could be that he's saying, hey, you don't know that God hasn't sent them to you as a messenger from God. Some people prefer that interpretation. Most people see this as being, no, it's a reference to the fact that you need to be hospitable because you don't know who it is that you're being hospitable to. Of course, Jesus covers it by saying, if you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So no angel is more important than he is, and that should be reason enough for us to be hospitable, for us to to not forget to entertain strangers. The easiest thing in the world for me is to entertain people who are just like me. People who like the things I like, who have the same sense of humor that I have, who I can say anything to them and they're not going to be offended because they think like I do. I mean, that's really fun and that's really easy. But what sharpens our personal development is when we are in a situation where we need to get along with people, share with people, fellowship with people who are different than we are. Because that allows me to learn to think differently. Oh, if I get a bunch of my friends and say, you know, we go out to the desert and shoot guns. It's like, hey, everybody's going to go out there, a certain type of person. Nobody's on there, you know, maybe the first time I went, guys were a little nervous because I'm the pastor. But, you know, they got over that real quick. And, and it's like, hey, yeah, this is just, we're just doing things we like to do. If, I, if there's a big ultimate fighting championship on TV and I go, hey, anybody wants to watch the ultimate fighting championship, come on over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the pay-per-view. The only people that are going to come are people that like to see people beat other people up. It's not going to be, and I've done this. And the women, I just, you know, Anne will take the girls into the other room because they, ooh, ah, you know, when they see blood. To me, I see blood. I'm going, oh, nice. That's a good shot. Now, that may sound really sick to you, but there are things that you do that may be repulsive to me as well. But we are supposed to get along together. And what makes someone a stranger? They're different than you are. And he says, be careful because God may be wanting to use them in your life. God may be wanting to do some special work, maybe real angels. But at the very least, it forces us to get along with people who are different than we are. And if we can't do that, you know what? We're nothing. If you have a a church that's just all people who are alike, that's not a testimony at all. That's a club. You go into, into some churches and it seems like everyone's just the same. The last thing I would ever want is just a group of people who are all the same. Is it fun? Sure. You'd have some great potlucks. You'd have some great fellowship, great activities. Everyone would agree on how ministry should be done. It would be easy to teach because you just teach one way and everybody likes it. But the church is supposed to be made up of different members. And in fact, Paul tells us that that's what makes it so special. Because those who are different become one. 
That's the mystery. That's the, the incredible nature of, of the body of Christ. Anywhere else right now in this county that's not a church, people who are getting together to share, they're, they're all people who are into the matrix and they're in line to see the movie. They're all the same. They're all people who like to drink the same stuff or watch the same TV shows and they're sitting in bars all drinking the same stuff, all cheering for the same team. If you want to cheer for another team, that's another bar down the street. See, they get together and have things in common. You have your computer clubs, you have your little sewing circles, you have your investment clubs, you have all of these things. They're all homogeneous groups. That just means that they're all the same. I'm not saying... But the thing about the church, it's only at the church when if we went around and talked about each other, we'd find out we have different political persuasions, different backgrounds, we're different ages, different races. We have different tastes in entertainment, different tastes in music, different approaches to almost everything. Our hobbies are different. We are so different. And then God says, that's what I love about you. Because the more different you are, then the greater the picture I can paint of how deep and broad and and wide my love is. And so if we are loving each other as brothers and sisters should, then we need to be glad when there's someone different who comes along. We need to feel like, oh, great. You know, you're the first Irish Catholic I've got to spend some time with in a long time. You're kidding. You're a you know, you're a Buddhist? I haven't met a Buddhist before. <laughs> and even when it comes to reaching the lost, it's being open to differences. And then, as a body, as different people accept the same God, then people can come in here and go, wow, this is weird. This isn't like what I expected at all. These are different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and everything else, and you guys all seem to love each other. And that's the testimony. And so he says, be careful when you're entertaining strangers. Abraham had to entertain someone who was as strange to him as you could possibly be. It was actually Jehovah God in the flesh. And he entertained him and was able to get him food. Imagine that. While his wife is laughing about the fact that he's saying they're going to have a baby. Because she's too old for that. And... What a difference. Well, tomorrow, maybe even tonight, what if God sends a stranger to you or to me? What if we come across someone who seems so different that we just want to look the other way? We just want to walk fast and go past them. We just hope they don't say anything to us. And what if it's just God trying to reveal himself in a form that surprises us? What if it's actually an angel? How embarrassing would that be? We get to heaven and some angel in all its glory comes up and goes, hey, remember when this happened in your life? Uh, that new kid came to your school and you, know, you made fun of him. You ended up beating him up just to show how tough you are. And Well, that was me. Oh, man, you're kidding. I'm sorry. I had no idea if I knew it was an angel. Well, the idea here is you don't know. You don't know who it is you're dealing with, and so you accept everyone. You reach out and welcome everyone. You just don't know who they really are. And other than even if you take angels out of the equation, 
Every person you meet in your life, you have no idea who they are, where they come from, why they are the way they are, what they've gone through. And you also have no idea how valuable they could be to you and to the body of Christ if they just blossom into who God has made them to be. And if we turn them away, if we reject people, if church is a place where if you're too different, they'd just rather have you not show up, then we are cutting off our future. And we're cutting off the love of God and limiting him. Are we going to get through this chapter? (laughs) And he says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Last week I read to you that passage from Matthew 25 where Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me, hungry and you fed me, and so on. And he says, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. All around us there are people in prison, literally, figuratively. And what he's saying here is understand this, no matter what someone else is going through, you be with them, you support them, you show that brotherly love to them, let that brotherly love continue in their lives, even if they're down on their luck and they're going through a hard time, because they're a part of your body. See, they may look different, but they're a part of you. We all, as Benjamin Franklin said, we will either hang together or certainly we will hang separately. And the body of Christ, if it starts to cut off its own members, if it doesn't reach out and show compassion to people in other countries, people who are in prison, people who are going through difficult times, people who are struggling with emotional problems or with physical ailments and whatever, if we don't pull together, we're only hurting ourselves because we're as strong as our weakest link. I remember one time when Ann and I were first married, and I just wasn't used to being in bed with another person. But uh, it was kind of weird. I was laying and like I had my arm stuck under my head in some way, so my hand fell asleep. And I woke up and there's this hand. And I'm, ah, you know, and it was really, I, I hit it. And it was my own hand. It was just asleep. But thankfully, I never hit Ann when I woke up and saw her in bed. But it was, it was my hand, but because it had become disconnected neurologically, just because it was asleep, I looked on it as the enemy. If I had a knife, I would have stabbed it. But see, this is what happens in the body of Christ. There's a member of the body, and it's a part of us. And yet, circulation hasn't been working very well. And we're kind of in a fog, and we're not paying attention. And all of a sudden, that person no longer looks like a member of our body. It looks like something completely foreign and different. It's us and them, and and you're a them. And when we don't see that we're all in the same body. So when any of us is hurting, we all hurt. We need to understand what that means. And here he says, and and he says, since you yourselves are in the body also. That reminds me of when Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about partaking in a worthy or unworthy manner in communion. And he says, Sometimes you don't discern the Lord's body. And in the context, he's talking about being selfish, hogging up a bunch of communion stuff for you and allowing other people to go without. And the idea of discerning the Lord's body is, I believe, the idea of understanding that we're all connected, that we're all together, that we're all members one of another. And when you hurt, that hurts me. When you rejoice, I'm blessed. 
You know, if something great happens to you, great, I'm, I can be happy for you. Even if something crummy happened to me, you can feel a little sorry for me. I can be happy because of what happened to you. If, if we went and polled everyone in here, there are some people in here who had a great day today. There are some people in here who had a horrible day today. And there are a bunch of other people that hasn't really soaked in yet. You don't even know whether it was a good day or a bad day. But as long as some of us had a good day, then this was a good day because we're in the body. That's all tempered by the fact that there are people in here who are suffering as well. There are people who aren't able to be here tonight because they're suffering. But let's understand, this is a body. We need to know we're in this together. We're a family. And so he goes on to say, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage, as we're talking about love, marriage is this beautiful picture of God's love. It's, it's why God invented marriage, so that we would understand somehow the love that he has for us. And so, as he said, hey, it's not good for man to be alone, brought Eve as a helpmate. He gave this great picture of what love was about. And so here he says, marriage, it's a great picture of love, but if it's, if it's destroyed... If it's not appreciated, if it's sacrificed, if it's, if it's tossed away, if it's, if it's violated, then God's going to take care of that. By saying that the marriage bed is undefiled, that can either be translated, the marriage bed is undefiled, or it can be translated, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Commentators differ on that. It either means let the marriage bed be undefiled, means don't corrupt that bond that you have as husband and wife. Um, the marriage bed is undefiled, probably, to my way of thinking, means that marriage is something that's really special, God esteems very highly. Some of the latest, you know, the last 10, 15 years, there are marriage books that try to use this scripture and say that anything that's done between a husband and wife physically is okay because the marriage bed is undefiled. It's kind of taking modern day overly overemphasis on sexuality and 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 in its in all of its varieties and everything and it's trying to say that this is what the author of Hebrews was talking about i really doubt it and that doesn't mean I, i'm not on a on a rampage to say there are some things physically that husbands and wives shouldn't do and you know because the bible has certain things to say about some of it but you know, I'm going to leave that alone, believe me, I'm not going to touch it. But really, that's not what he was talking about. This wasn't, this wasn't the author of Hebrews trying to say, hey, don't worry, experiment, you know, get the Kama Sutra or whatever, because that's not the deal. That's, he wouldn't have been talking about that. But the point is, in love, there's no higher expression of love than in marriage. And he's saying you need to esteem that. You need to hold that as being valuable. You need to let brotherly love continue within your marital bonds. If husbands and wives can't love each other, what hope is there for everyone else to love each other? And so that's his point here. That's really what he's trying to say is that if you're married, and Paul wasn't, but if you are, he's saying, hey, that's a blessing. That's a gift from God. That's something that's to be treasured. To violate that? To break that bond destroys the picture that God intended to use to show people what his love is all about. And that's why it's such a big deal. And, but it's nice. He says, it's not like we're going to judge you. God will. Fornicators and adulterers, people who defile the marriage bed. 
He goes on to say, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Addressing this issue of covetousness, I can't spend as much time on it as I would like, but covetousness, why does it fit in contextually? Because how many times does covetousness not only cause us not to reach out and love other people, because we're too busy worrying about our own needs, but maritally, what happens when a marriage breaks down? Well, it starts by not being satisfied with what you have. And then you start to look elsewhere. You start to desire what someone else has. You start to say, you know, why can't you be more like her husband? He's so romantic. He brings her cards and flowers all the time. And, oh, he did this really special vacation. And, and you're just going, I don't know. I guess I can't be like him. But that's the beginning of the end for a marriage. When you start comparing your spouse to someone else, when you start to think it'd be nice if your spouse were more like someone else, the next step is, you know, it'd be really tragic and I'd cry and everything, but wow, if my spouse ever died and their spouse ever died, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> and you go, what? I, there is a story about, about a guy who, his wife said to him, honey, if I ever died, would you remarry? And he goes, oh, no, I'd never remarry. And she said, well, come on. I mean, what if it was years? And I mean, the kids need a parent and need a mom. And I mean, if somewhere down the road, if God showed you and, you know, he goes, I don't know. I suppose if it worked out years later, but you're not going to die. She goes, yeah, I know. But you would remarry probably at some point. And he said, I, I suppose. She said, well, honey, if I died and you remarried, would you let her drive my car? He goes, you're not going to die. And she goes, yeah, but I mean, it, what if? Would you let her drive my car? And he said, well, I suppose. I mean, if we had the car there and I'm married, and I guess. And she said, well, if I died and you remarried, would you let her wear my jewelry? And he goes, this is getting ridiculous. He goes, I don't know if the jewelry's there and she wanted to wear it and the kids felt okay about it. I, I, probably so. And then she said, okay, well, if I died and you remarried, would you let her use my golf clubs? And he said, oh, no, she's left-handed. <laughs> but that's what, that's what happens. You'll get it. Uh, that, that's what happens in a marriage when there's covetousness. But not only that, marriages that aren't destroyed by people coveting what someone else has, looking at other relationships and, and feeling that that's attractive, Sometimes marriages are destroyed just because of materialism, just because of people wanting things. And as you want things, you get deeper into debt. You argue over whether or not you should get the things. You argue over who buys more toys, you know, and, uh, and it's this thing of, well, I earn more money than you, so I ought to be able to have a few more toys. And, and it becomes completely divisive. The Bible teaches over and over again, clearly, and if we had time, we'd go over to 1 Timothy 6, but if this is something that you're struggling with, you can read that on your own, where Paul tells Timothy, you got to teach people to be satisfied with what they have. Be content with where you are. Don't look at the discontentedness in your life and try to achieve more. It never works out. 
It's never a good thing when that happens. And, and so, you know, he says, let your conduct be without covetousness and, I, and be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was a quote from the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 31. And then it's repeated in Joshua chapter 1. As Moses died, God spoke to Joshua and said, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. But it reminds me of Abraham back in Genesis 15. Remember when he rescued Lot and, and the kings of Sodom from those other kings and, and they wanted to reward him and he said, no, if I'm going to get rich, I want God to make me rich. And then he turned to God and said, God, I just gave up a fortune. And God said, yeah, I noticed that was a good thing. But he said, if you're wondering what's in it for you, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Genesis 15. And that is what God says to us. He says, what you have here. Now, Abraham owned a lot of things. Later, he owned a lot more things. He acknowledged that they came from God. It's not that, it's not that being blessed materially is, is a bad thing at all. And Paul goes into that in 1 Timothy 6 too and says, no, just don't be attached to the stuff. But here he's saying, be content. Don't cause your contentment to be based on anything that you have or you don't have. It'll only lead to frustration and there's no end to it. You'll never be satisfied if you're falling into covetousness. If you have the Lord, the Lord is my helper. I won't fear what can man do to me. Boldly we can say that. I have everything I need because I have Jesus Christ. Because God is working in my life. Because I'm an a heir with Jesus. A co-heir with him. I've got it made. I have a friend who... For years working, he still works over there at the school at, at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And he was just barely squeaking by. But he had two parents who were fairly rich and fairly sick. And so he never really worried about, oh no, how are my kids going to go to college or what's going to happen down the road? Because he knew they stood to inherit a decent amount of money. And his mom was really busy spending as much as she could. And yet still he knew it's going to be okay. And in a way, that's kind of the place where we should be realizing maybe we haven't possessed everything we're going to, but because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, it's all going to be taken care of. We are going to, to inherit all things. The meek, meek inherit the earth. And so we shouldn't worry about the future because what the future holds for us, we're going to be rich beyond our imagination. The truth is we're rich now beyond our imagination if we understand what we have in him. And so he's just saying, I'm enough. Don't worry about what else you have in addition to me. Then he says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. We're going to talk about this a little more when we come down to verse 17 because it has a similar kind of instruction. But the word for rule there would be much better translated in some other way. And there are a lot of other possibilities, but, but it just means to lead. And these, script, these scriptures, verse 7 and verse 17, have been used and abused by people in spiritual authority to suggest that as a Christian, you're supposed to obey your pastor. 
You're just supposed to do what they say, and then they'll answer to God, don't worry, you don't have to think about what's right and wrong. And let me tell you, that is absolutely not what it teaches. The Bible contradicts that in so many places, it's not even funny. What he's saying in this verse is, pay attention. And it may be even looking back toward those who are an influence who have now gone on to be with the Lord. But it says, remember those who, who lead you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Obviously, the verse is pointing us to those people who have gone on ahead of us, who taught us the word, and now their life demonstrates the, the kind of heart, the kind of attitude that says, look, here's how it ends up. It all ends up great. When you follow the Lord, when you do what he says, follow their lead, understand, look at their end, see how it's worked out for them in their lives, and figure out what you can learn from them. I love reading biographies of Christians. Now, the problem with reading biographies is quite often they're fluff pieces. I love the biographies in the Bible because God's honest. Well, sometimes when you read a, a, you know, a book about some great Christian of the past, they make them sound so perfect and we just think, oh, I could never be like that. But personally, I'm inspired by the lives of people who have gone on ahead of us who have laid foundations, who have walked consistently their whole lives, teaching the word, exemplifying it, and finally finishing the course, winning the race, going to be with the Lord. And when I read about those kinds of people and, and people who I have known who are that way, I'm, I'm inspired. I just go, wow, I want to be like that. I, I want to follow that example. I want to follow that lead. But nowhere ever... Are you told to obey someone who's, who's doing something contrary to what God says? And, and who is just, you know, on the basis of their position, doing what they tell you to do. I will never tell you what to do. If I do, take it with a grain of salt. I mean, don't come to me and expect me to tell you what to do in your life. Uh, because I'm not God. And... I'm not a person for you to just come and plug into and I'll do your thinking for you. I have enough problems of my own. I will try to share consistently and honestly the scripture with you. I'll try to just live my life out openly before you and I won't fake anything or pretend anything. But the fact is God is able to speak to you. There is one mediator between God and man. And it's not your pastor. It's not the Virgin Mary. It's not Oprah or Dr. Phil, it's Jesus Christ. And he doesn't have a problem talking to you. And so don't take this scripture and turn it around and, or let anyone turn it around on you and turn it into a shepherding sort of thing that you, know, you need to go ask your pastor whether or not you should you know, buy a house or sell it or get married or whatever. That's, that's not what he has in mind here at all. Paul said, before be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He said, you want to copy something about me? Copy the fact that I'm imitating Jesus Christ. But as we look at people that God's used in our lives, look how it works out. Well, there are positive and negative examples of it. But the fact is, take a look at what happens when you live your life a certain way and then learn a lesson from it. That's really what he's saying. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Seems like it's kind of thrown in there, like, where did this come from? 
It's important from the standpoint of it's, it's saying clearly that Jesus is God. Remember over in chapter 1 and verse 12, as God is talking to Jesus and calling him Yahweh, he says, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Chapter 1, chapter 13, reiterating the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He doesn't change. But why is it put here? Because what was good in the past is still good today in the context of looking at those who have gone before us, realizing God still wants to work in our midst today the way he has in the past. Sometimes this happens just looking at our own lives. If you really want to zoom in and see this in, in, in a microcosm, think of your own life and realize, boy, there was a day when I was so on fire for God. There was a day when God was really using me. Boy, back in the day, I'd hear from God. I'd follow him. Miracles were happening. Hey, Learn from that example. Figure out like Paul told, like, sorry, Jesus told the Ephesians in Revelation. Go back and do the deeds you did at first. Get back on track. Understand. Learn from your own example. And realize Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not through. He's not even tailing off. He's not thinking about retiring. He's not slowing down, cutting back. He's the same. And he wants to work now the same way that he did in the first century church. In the same way that he did when you were a young Christian. In the same way that he did when he worked in a David Brainerd or a Hudson Taylor or somebody like, you know, someone else's life. He still wants to do that today. He's the same because he's God. He doesn't change. He wants to keep working the way that he started to work. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So he's saying, don't get carried about nitpicking things that don't matter. The fact is, we have the grace of God. Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures, seen by witnesses. That's the simple truth. The simple truth is that our high priest went into the Holy of Holies and opened it up so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. So don't get hung up with rules and laws and what you can eat and what you can't eat. It's just a big distraction. And again, the, the central argument to the book of Hebrews, don't wish you were in the Old Testament days again. Don't create your own law version of Christianity. It's about grace. It's not about rules. It's not about nitpicking little, little things and who's more right and who's more wrong and all that. He said, don't get carried away with that stuff. It's nothing compared to the grace of God. He said, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. He said, we, have, we can come boldly personally. How can that compare to the religion of the Old Testament? They couldn't go in there. They would have died. But he says, for the bodies of those animals, he's talking about the sin offering here, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. When they did the sin offering, 
when it was finally done because of the implication of the sin and everything, took it outside the tabernacle, went outside the camp and did the sin offering and then brought the blood in in order to perform it. And he's using that picture, he's taking that connection and he's tying it in interestingly with Jesus being sacrificed where, within the temple? No. He was questioned on the Temple Mount, but he was taken outside the city of Jerusalem in order to be sacrificed. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've seen where outside the wall of Jerusalem, there is that hill that looks like a skull where the bus station is. And up on top of that hill, Mount Calvary, the top of the mountains of Moriah. And that's where Jesus Christ was crucified outside the camp. And his point is that when it came down to the sin offering, when it came down to Jesus Christ sacrificing himself for us, it did not fit with the temple or tabernacle system. This was something that was so different because it wouldn't be blood of bulls and goats. And it was something that would be going through the back door, really. And he said, that's what Jesus did. And that's how we got in as well. If we fall back into that sacrificial system and we ignore the sacrifice that was done outside the camp, if we aren't willing to step out of the sacrificial system outside the city in order to receive from him that grace that he wants to give us, then we'll miss it. It won't be there. And so he goes on to say, we should go outside for here we have no continuing city but we seek the one that's to come. Over in Hebrews 11, talking about Abraham, it said, he looked for a city that hath foundation whose builder and maker is God. Another way of putting it would be to say, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And, and, and that's what he's trying to explain to them because if they want to go through legalism, they're gonna be like everyone else who died in legalism. If they don't want to receive the grace of God, to really shatter the rules of religion and instead receive a work that's just done on your behalf, well then, great, build your temple. But our true temple and our true fellowship and the true Holy of Holies, the true presence of the glory, the Shekinah, the Kabbat of God, it's not gonna be found in a building. And our fulfillment, and our fellowship with God is not going to be found in anything that's made with hands. It's not going to be in any church building. It's not going to be in any city, state, country. We look for a city that's not made with hands. Because that's how he met us outside the camp. Okay, and then he says... Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. I spent a Sunday morning two weeks ago talking about this, the thanksgiving of praise and, and why praise is sacrificial, why it's considered a sacrifice. And so I'm not going to go through that extensively again. Basically, it takes a lot of us. It takes humility. It takes time. It takes... Um, facing ourselves, looking at ourselves in the mirror in order, to, in order to praise God from the heart. And it's something that's so important for us to do. And it's something that he receives as a sacrifice. He says, that pleases me. That is something that connects with me. When we praise God, we're connecting with his throne room in sacrifice. 
But he goes on to say, and on Sunday we didn't have time to even look at this verse at all. He says, but don't forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So altogether, three sacrifices he shows here. The first one is praise, the second is doing good, and the third one is sharing. The, the idea of doing things for others as being a sacrifice that's acceptable to God, every time we do good for someone, it's a sacrifice. A lot of times we don't do it because it would be too much trouble. But over the years, as we get older and we get more set in our ways, we become less available and less open to being taken off our routine in order just to do something good for someone else, in order to just minister to someone else. You know, you see a guy and girl, they're madly in love, and, and they just they do anything to please each other. They would, you know, you say, I'd swim across the ocean for you. I'd climb a mountain for you. You just say it. I, right now, just say it, and if you're craving uh, an ice cream that's only available in Montebello, I'm out of here. I'm going to go get it for you. You'll see. You want me to do that right now? No, 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 that's okay. Then after you're together for a while, guys at work, wife calls, hey, could you pick up a half gallon of milk on your way home? Oh, man, I'm tired. I don't... What happened? You were going to swim across the ocean for her. Now you won't drive into a parking lot and get a... You know, get a half gallon of milk for her? But that's what happens to us. But God says, I know it's a sacrifice for you to do good. I know it isn't always easy. The fact is, if you continue to do good for people, most of the time they're not going to appreciate it. They're probably not going to return it. It's a, it's a pain in the neck to live your life trying to serve other people. It really is. But he says, when you do it for them, I'll take it as a sacrifice. And I'll be pleased with it. You'll sacrifice, but as you serve others, you're serving me. And again, back to that passage in Matthew where Jesus said, if you do it to them, you're doing it to me. Pastor Romain at Calvary Costa Mesa used to joke about it all the time because people would, everyone treats Pastor Chuck differently than everyone else. And Romain used to say, and he'd call you on it every time he saw it, but there were like, I remember one time there were about six bags of trash in the church office just sitting there. And there were a bunch of pastors. Obviously, I was one of them or I wouldn't know the story. And we're sitting around talking and nobody's making a move for the trash bags. Pastor Chuck came walking in. He bent over and he picked up all those trash bags. And like eight pastors dived for the door to open the door for him. And you go, what? I mean, you won't pick up the trash, but you'll open the door for Chuck to take the trash out. But that's kind of the way we are. We don't like to serve, especially if it doesn't seem like it pays, especially if no one will notice, especially if it's picking up for other people. Pastor Chuck used to really get upset because the kids a lot of times at the school would leave trash in the parking lot. And Chuck, when he drives through the parking lot, he opens his door and bends over and picks up the trash. But, you know, he said he was getting so mad at the kids. Oh, these kids. And he was picking up the trash. And, and uh, you know, he was just really getting frustrated with it. And then he said, the Lord showed him, you're doing it for me. It's not about those kids that left the mess. It's a sacrifice for you to clean up after those kids. But you're getting to do this for me. And he said, God really changed his heart. What I finally did, too, I bought him a watch. He wanted, it's one of these watches that has the atomic time. And I bought him the watch, and I said, wear that watch 
And every time you reach down, look at the watch, and remember you're being paid for picking up trash. <laughs> and that helped even more. But the fact is, doing good for people, it's a sacrifice. It is. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's not worth anything. Really, I don't think we're going to get crowns in heaven for all the junk we, you know, give to the goodwill that just because it's easier than because the dumps are too far to go to nowadays. I, you know, giving away things we don't want, I don't think we're going to get a lot of credit for. But giving away something that costs you, no matter how little it is, doing something for someone when it really is an inconvenience, when it really does take you off your schedule, I believe God will pay you back for those. That's a sacrifice. And then also, in our version, to share, I think the King James says to communicate. It's a word that, liter- that is used generally in the scriptures. Well, in, over in Galatians, Paul uses the same word to talk about giving your offerings in order to pay the pastors and saying that that's a good thing. It's basically giving financially to the Lord's work is what he's talking about. It's not communication like you say things. It's not sharing like, here, have a little of this. It's saying even in a sacrificial way, I'm willing to give to the Lord's work. We have lots of opportunities to do that. But, you know, it means that there are certain things that you can't do. If you're going to give money to the Lord, it takes away some of the money that you could spend on yourself. And really, we all have to face that issue of how much can I really afford to give? Not how much do I have to give? How much can I afford to sacrifice? You don't have to do it. He says he doesn't even accept it unless it's from a cheerful heart, unless we give willfully. But when we understand that this has something to do with our relationship with God, that when we give, he is saying, I take it and I appreciate it. And I see that you're sacrificing and it's pleasing to me that you're doing that. Well, if we just want to please God, then we'll do it. If, if not, he says, that's okay. I'm not trying to twist it out of you or anything. He's going, but... When you do this, it's something that's a sacrifice, and I, and I accept it. So sacrifices of praise, of ministry, really, and of giving, as we see here. Ooh. Okay, let's see. What can I can Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For, I kind of went off on that a little more than I intended to the first time. Obey those who have rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The word there that's translated obey, it's not translated obey anywhere else. That's that's not the word pytho. It means to be persuaded, have confidence, trust. What it's really saying is trust those who lead you. And be submissive in terms of lining up with where you fit in. Don't be constantly butting heads with people who are trying to lead you. Get in line is what that word means. It was a military term that meant to look to your right and left and diagonally so you see that you're in line. Those who rule over you, again, it's a word that, that it's a word here that doesn't ever mean, it's never used as actually ruling um, anywhere in the New Testament. Whenever it's talking about rulers ruling, it's a whole different word. This is a word that really means to to entreat someone to, um, to lead them, really, and, and to lead them by persuasion. And so what he's saying is those people who are trying to do that, and especially those who watch out for your souls, any leader who isn't watching out for the souls of the people wouldn't qualify here anyway, and those are the kind of guys who will use this to say you need to follow me because I'm the boss. As those who must give an account, they're going to give an account, uh, 
just remember Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, if you want to be a leader in the church, in my program, then what you do is don't be like the Gentiles. They lord it over those. They exert their influence. They become strong you know, leaders. He says, now you want to lead, be a servant. You go first. You lead first. You sacrifice first. And so, but he says, let them lead you with joy and not with grief. Don't give them a hard time. That would be unprofitable for you. If, you. if you just spend too much time making leaders miserable, you're going to be miserable too. And you just bounce from leader to leader to leader, and it just makes a big mess. But we won't go off on that anymore because you guys aren't like that. I, I'm so blessed here. Nobody gives me a hard time. Well, maybe not nobody. But <laughs> Then he says, he gets personal here and says, pray for us. We're confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now it starts becoming less like a theological treatise and more like a letter. We said in the beginning, some people say Hebrews is an epistle, some people say it's a treatise. It ends up like an epistle, it ends up like a letter. So he says, pray for us. Now may the God of peace, and we covered this last Sunday, just a beautiful benediction. I want to read it again. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete, mature, perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I say amen to that. It's just a beautiful prayer, and I, I would love for that blessing to be put over me all the time. If you ever want to pray for me and pray that all this happens to me, that would be great. And now he says, I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. It's his longest book, but he says he's writing in few words. That's the typical preacher, but he's saying, hang in there. I know a lot of this is hard, but you need to listen to it. And then he says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you or lead you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Again, it ends up sounding a lot like Paul. Of course, Timothy hung out with Paul. He talked about him all the time. He was his protege. Now he's saying Timothy was here in Rome with me. We know that at this time Paul was in prison in Rome. We know that Timothy got to Rome and was with him part of the time. And so, again, all of this dictates that it's probably Paul who wrote this book as well. But he just says, hey, Timothy's going to come and see you, and I'm going to come and see you too. And, and though he was in prison, you don't get the feeling that he was in prison. You get the feeling that he was having a great sabbatical to really hear from God. Some of the most glorious truths that are existent in this universe are found in Hebrews and nowhere else. And they came to Paul, I believe, while he was in prison in Rome, while he was waiting to be tried, while it looked like, oh, man, my ministry is really messed up now. I'm locked up. And yet God revealed these. <coughs> Thank you. God revealed these glorious truths to the author of Hebrews so that they could be revealed to us. And I... And I think that as we're going through, continuing through the Old Testament, we need to keep Hebrews in the back of our mind the whole time because this is the template. This is the, this is the interpretation that gives meaning to all that we've studied and all that we will study in the Old Testament. And it was given to a little old guy in prison. And he wrote it out to mainly address to people that he wasn't supposed to minister to. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he couldn't help it. When he understood the Old Testament, when he saw the truth of it, 
He goes, man, I got to share this, whether these guys listen to it or not. I know the Jews are mad at me, and, and this is going to be tough for them, but I got to tell them this stuff. And I don't know how many of the Jewish believers came to understand it because of this book, but I know as a Gentile who would have a hard time making sense out of much of the Old Testament, if it wasn't for the book of Hebrews, I'm glad he got this revelation. And it's been great going through it, and we'll just look forward next week to diving into the book of Numbers. Let's pray. God, you're so good that you give us everything we need, that your word is so powerful, it's so alive. It's so amazing how it interprets itself. We, we read your word and we learn so much about the other parts of your word. And God, as we've been able to spend these weeks in this book of Hebrews, I pray that the truth of, of you sending your son to be our high priest, to sacrifice for our sins, would just be in the forefront of our minds as we read the history of Israel. That good examples and bad would connect with us. And God, the superiority of that new covenant to the whole Old Testament. We're so excited that now we know as we read the Old Testament, we've got it better. We're more blessed. We are infinitely more privileged than these Old Testament saints. God, help us to appreciate what we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.